This is why Comico County Council Member Josh Hastings, speaking from the capital of Delmarva, Salisbury, Maryland, and you are listening to the absolute best source for Maryland policy and politics, the Conduit Street Podcast. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Today on the podcast, we're going to get into the final days of session. We'll talk about a few takeaways from the legislative session. We'll look ahead to budget season for county governments, and then we'll talk a little bit about the Board of Public Works setting the state property tax rate, what we can glean from that, if anything. But Michael, how are you? It's good to be back with you in the office on Conduit Street, recording another episode of the podcast. Yeah, I like being back here. And uh, actually, I will say I kind of like the calm version of Annapolis a week or two following the legislative session. So that's kind of nice. Some some people who do this this session business make a point of like seriously unplugging. You head head south someplace warm, like you have the Tuesday right after session and get out of town, that sort of thing. I've never been that guy, so I've been nearby this whole stretch, but uh, feeling a little little more together. How about you? Same. I'm not that guy either, but certainly it's it's nice to sort of sit back and take stock once <laughs> everybody leaves town and sort of figure out where you are. Right. And and speaking of that, Michael, we have a lot of recaps on our blog. We do a series after session, and it's a session recap for every subject area that MAKO is involved in and, and legislation related to it. There's a lot of information there. Yeah, we try and we try and do the rundown on Friday following the you know, Monday night at midnight is is technically the end of session, and we pronounce it signy die and no confetti this year. Just this is three years in a row now we've had to go without the traditional pomp and circumstance of the final day of session. This didn't didn't feel like the year where you exactly you know pop champagne corks, but nonetheless right. we we got through a legislative session safely and soundly. And we can talk through the mechanics of that a little bit, which I think is worthwhile. But um, what we feel like we owe the county community and others who read and follow our media is here's a quick rundown of the issues that affected local governments and where they ended up. And what tends to happen is those last few days of session, you come in on Thursday or Friday with three or four days left. And you know, Friday morning on, 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 on the last week of session, I remember our policy group sitting together and we had, I don't know, it must have been 15 or 18 different bills where we felt, oh, this is likely right. just going to die or this one's probably going to get through, but it needs some things. I mean, I had one of my bills that I thought was for sure to pass didn't. I know there were some other things that we thought were on their way towards passing and had some late hitches. Mm -hmm. One of my bills I thought was dead uh, suddenly grew life at two or three in the afternoon on the final day and that got passed. So, I mean, a lot of late twists, that's typical. And that actually is kind of evidence that this session was closer to normal than we would have guessed, which will be one of our running themes today. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, what you're describing sounds pretty normal, right? You have those situations where bills all of a sudden get taken out of a drawer or a bill hits snag. And, and you know, we saw a lot of that and we saw a lot of stuff go down till midnight, right? There were, yep. there were still working until midnight. So my big takeaway, at least in terms of legislation passed 
and process in terms of moving bills, it didn't turn out the way we thought it might. And actually, Michael, we heard the Senate president about halfway through sure. session talk about, hey, we have a lot of bills, we're backed up. The process that we're having to go through, the health and safety measures that we're having to undertake means that a lot of good bills are just going to die. Yeah, almost those exact words, right. as I recall, Senate President Ferguson more or less telling his colleagues in the Senate, like, be ready, the back half of this session is going to be unusual. This won't be as efficient as normal. And we usually have time to get to all the important and, and worthy stuff, but maybe this year it won't play out that way. I I mean, we had our sights set that way. Right. I, I know as just stakeholders in the policy process, we were ready for this to be a tough year, and it was less so than I was ready for, for sure. No, absolutely. And again, I mean, we really didn't see that happen, right? We didn't yeah. see a lot of bills get caught up. They moved a lot of bills, and it's somewhat an, a normal number. Again, Sine Die was busy with activity. So you didn't notice very much unless you're watching the feeds and the senators are in phone booths, and in the House you have right. a chamber sort right. of set up outside so that they could deal with the social distancing. But yeah. I guess the biggest thing is the health and safety measures worked, right? Right. The, the presiding officers put together a plan to make this session happen. It looked weird. It felt weird. But at the end of the day, they were very successful in making sure that they could convene and do the people's work. Yeah. I, I mean, it was superficially very different, right? For, for stakeholders like us who are used to sitting in the committee room for hours on end so we can have our minute or two at the table, at the microphone and, you know, to, to testify or to an, answer questions from senators and delegates and so forth. This felt really different doing that through remote electronic means and having residents and other stakeholders and citizens and so forth all do the same thing. That felt and looked really different. The, the conduct on the floor was different right. and trying to watch things, especially in my, in my view, especially in the Senate with the sort of plexiglass dividers separating, trying, you know, trying to make airspace breaks between senators right, right. To, to be able to put all the senators on the floor of the Maryland Senate, they decided we'll, we'll give everybody partitions. We'll make them see through so you can kind of see through the cameras who's speaking, but it was a little oblique. And sometimes you're looking through a couple panes of glass right, right. and that felt different. I mean, sometimes right. the senators couldn't even see each other right, right on yeah. the floor. So I, I think it, that was weird. You're, you're right that visually, but yeah. still they got a lot of bills passed. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that really is the takeaway, that even given all these superficial differences, it was a peculiar session. And it was, I'm sure, one of a kind memorable for the members, for the senators and delegates who, you know, in the in the House, they had the annex in a separate room, and they had a lot of communications through video from one room to another. And same thing. Sometimes you couldn't hear or you couldn't see the person with whom you're debating right. on the floor or across the buildings in the House. So. So for them and for us, it'll be memorable in how unusual it was. But I think your point is right that there won't be a wave of issues where next year the conversation starts with, well, you know, this was one of those many bills that just never got any attention because 21 was the COVID year. I mean, I heard a lot of that this year. Right. I heard a lot of bills introduced in the 21 session with a legislator saying, this bill was on its way toward passage, but because we we stopped the session early, it was one of those things that just got caught up in the 2020 COVID shutdown. And I think that's fair. I there think, were a I think lot it of is, bills yeah. there, right? And, and, and I think that was an all-purpose. People would nod their head and say, yeah, I understand one of my bills got caught up the same way. Right, right, right. But I, I don't feel like there are 
hundreds of good bills that ended up dying or even scores Mm -hmm. of good bills that ended up dying this session just because we ran out of floor time or we just couldn't get to everything. I mean, something, a little bit of that happens every session, but I don't, I don't think this was a, a really peculiar year in that regard. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have put my money on that just back in October, November, no matter what level of health concern we were going to have for this session, I thought the smart money was do the most important stuff, the biggest high profile issues. And if little things can sneak through along the way, fine, but we're just, they're just not going to have time to do work groups and a lot of amendments and sorting things out back and forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and I admire how much they were able to get done. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And, and like you said, I mean, a lot of bills got amended. The committee staff was working overtime. It is very impressive the amount that they were able to get through, not just the big issues, as you said, some of the, the not so big issues as well. So I agree, this won't be a session with an asterisk next to it, right? Even right. though things were, were different optically and you couldn't get into the buildings, they still were able to get through a lot of bills. And again, I, yeah. I agree, I think it's a testament to you know the plans that were, that were put together and, and they worked yeah. and everybody was able to do it successfully. I, I think another thing that we talked a little bit about, I think, I think we, we talked on this pod uh, leading into the legislative session back in December, January, and then maybe once or tri- and twice with our colleagues during the session, the idea that they might just be pinched for time on the floor. The idea of we're only going to conduct business for a couple hours, then we have to clear out and we're going to, you know, sort of clean off all the surfaces and so forth of the floor of the Senate or the House. So that seems like it ruled out the possibility of an eight hour straight floor session, which Mm -hmm. would be ordinarily you would do that. We were thinking, wow, especially in the Senate with their rules of procedure, that kind of creates a potential bottleneck and it might invite sort of procedural delays by someone who's opposed to a bill that's on its way toward passing to offer up lots of questions or amendments or even like engage in true delay tactics, knowing that the floor clock would be its own game. Right? We thought that was going to be maybe a big part of the late session story. Right. And, and of course, those floor limits were in place for the majority of session. They did away with them in both the House and the Senate toward the end. But Michael, I agree. And we did see some flickers of filibusters, right? Even though the votes weren't necessarily there, we did see flickers of stuff you'd normally see in D.C. where somebody's reading the phone book or (laughs) reading a book, Dr. Seuss, whatever it may be. We saw that start to happen more so than usual. So I think in a way that prediction came true. However, in the Senate is where you'd most likely see this happen. But if you don't have the votes to sustain a filibuster, then you're kind of out of luck. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what level of depth is worth it here. Like, I don't think the 20 minute diatribe on parliamentary procedure and so forth makes sense, but maybe the, like the two minute version is, is worth it here. Um, the, the Maryland General Assembly works like most legislative bodies that each chamber has its own rules of procedure. And in Maryland, like in lots of places, including the U.S. Congress, the, the, the procedural rules are different between the two chambers. In the House, if you are recognized by the presiding officer in the House, technically you are yielded a window of time in which you have the floor. And when your time expires – 
the the floor goes back to the presiding officer. Right. That's different from the Maryland Senate, where once a member of the Senate is recognized, that person has the floor. Now there are a few there are a few motions that that take precedence and so forth, but you can't just take the floor away from a senator um, unless you have the votes to carry out a supermajority action. Mm-hmm. So this is what lays the ground for, groundwork for what we call in politics the, the filibuster. And the, the idea being once a member of the Senate has the floor to ask a question or to offer an amendment or to engage in debate, then she doesn't have to release the, the floor, you, you, it's like, it's like having the conch shell on the island, you know, in, right. in Lord of the Flies, right? right? Well, you know, that's the person who has the ability to speak and it takes a super majority. In the Maryland Senate, it's a three fifths vote to, to, to basically say we're going to limit debate and cut things off after a fixed period of time. Right. So until a vote like that is taken, a person can stand up and debate the bill, ask questions, and say almost whatever he or she wants. Um, you can, I think honest people can disagree about whether a filibuster rule or a set of procedures that allow a filibuster, whether that's a good thing. And the U.S. Congress is in the middle of that political debate right now. Right. You can probably have the same debate about the Maryland Senate and lots of other legislative bodies. But because that does exist, I felt like the threat of a filibuster mixed in with these potential time limits on the floor could have been an opportunity for, for lack of a better term, obstructionist efforts. Right. That we don't want this bill to pass, and so we're going to shut down the entire Senate. And in Maryland, we've seen this sort of thing happen in the past. Sometimes like the, you lose the entire day Tuesday right. with four and a half hours of – just dribble the ball kind of debate. And, and basically what this comes down to is, do you have the votes on the floor of the body to say enough is enough? It's time to limit the debate. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can be a tough thing to do. And sometimes you'll have uh, members who are in the middle of the political spectrum will be tortured on whether to vote for like to, to tell, to tell your colleagues stop talking right. sometimes feels like a difficult thing to vote for. That feels kind of personal. Right. right? And, and I find it interesting because I always wonder when you can find, you kind of know when that's coming. Normally, right. it will be the majority leader will stand up and, and ask for that motion. And I always wonder, how long do you let somebody go before you say enough is enough? Right. And I guess it depends on that day, the issue at hand, whether or not you actually think there is a lot to debate and, or whether or not someone's just rambling on and on. But I do find it fascinating as to when you actually make that motion and cut somebody off. And it is a tough vote for, for your colleagues to have yeah. to make, right? Yeah. To say, Michael, right. enough <laughs> is enough, Senator, right. sit down. Right. So, so, I mean, yeah, effectively, the vote is sit down right and and to have you know 60% of that's 29 votes in the Maryland Senate it takes to say f- forget what the rules are we're going to limit debate on this and hear what the limits are going to be um anyway it happened a couple of times I, I was listening to the floor two different times i don't know if it was more than that but right. at least a couple times this session in the last week or week and a half they had to invoke a cloture motion which is to shut down debate after mm-hmm. a limited of time and so forth and both of those were on topics that were sensitive issues and 
I think the majority was right that this was tending toward a debate for the purpose of extending debate. So it's like, I'm going to read this report and I'm on to page three of what I'm reading. It wasn't like, I'm going to read you the one paragraph because this is powerful. It's like, I'm going to read you the entire report. And at some point, some members will say, all right, enough's enough. So, so, I mean, I, I guess in the final analysis, I thought the ingredients were there for a rocky finish for high profile and controversial issues and possibly for things that were backed up behind them. Mm -hmm. I I have been sometimes a stakeholder in years past. I've been a stakeholder in a bill that wasn't the controversial bill, but the controversial bill was sort of ahead of it in the queue. Mm -hmm. And so on the last night of session, now there's an hour and a half of debate on this other thing and my bill dies because things got bottled up in the Senate. I felt like that was coming two weeks before the session. I would have told you, I would have forecasted that was going to happen. And for the most part, it really didn't to any broad or meaningful effect. I agree. And then the third takeaway, just from this weird session, police reform, right? This was one of the biggest issues of the session. Yeah. We, we all knew that. The governor here could have really thrown a wrench into things, right, Michael? This was in the, the final days of session. The governor had a decision to make. And I think it's pretty well known the governor would prefer that the General Assembly not be in town. So maybe his decision was, was somewhat uh, expected. But what happened there and what could have the, the governor done procedurally to maybe make the General Assembly actually come back to town? All right. So so what we're into now is there are there are provisions in the Maryland Constitution for what the governor can do and what the timetable is for the governor's action after the legislature has passed legislation. And there are special rules for some special things. But in the main, when the legislature passes a bill, we know it goes to the governor to be either signed or vetoed, or sometimes the governor can let a bill become law without his or her signature. Mm -hmm. Now, as it turns out in the Constitution, there are two different timetables. There's a short timetable, which, as I recall, is six days, not including Sunday. Sunday, If a bill is passed and that window of time is while the General Assembly is still in session. So if they pass something on Groundhog Day, you basically have a week to decide what to do. Right. But um, the more typical circumstances, lots of bills get passed, you know, in late March and into April. Legislature gets done the second week of April. They adjourn on a Monday night. They all go home. And then there's like a multi-week process. I forgot if it's 40 days or 30 days, but there's a there's a longer window of time, several weeks, mm-hmm. where the governor gets to contemplate what to do about bills. And w- what we typically see mechanically is – the attorney general's office goes through and reviews all those bills for legal sufficiency that the title is accurate and these are all constitutionally appropriate and that sort of stuff. And you want to have that kind of thorough analysis. So the constitution allows a longer reckoning period and it's usually sometime in the you know middle of May or mm-hmm. so is the last bill signing date and the last decision round for the governor. Right. Well, the reason I mention all this stuff is with 10 days to go in session, it looked like the General Assembly had their act together and had a package of police reforms ready to go to pass and send. It looks like you know this isn't going to be very bipartisan. It's going to be at least very close to a party line vote. So we're going to send a controversial set of bills to the governor. There's at least a possibility, probably a likelihood that the governor would veto some or all of the bills. Right. So at one point, the whisper in the breeze was they'll do 
it quickly, get it to the governor. So if he wants to veto them, it'll have to be within the 90 day session. Do it, get that six day clock going. And then that deadline passed. Yeah. yeah then the deadline passed so for, you know, we still, I still at least don't know exactly what happened, but I think the minutia of what was in the, the bills was still not quite sorted out right. by that sort of like final Saturday or right. into that final Monday. And so it turned into, okay, now it's Monday, it's Tuesday, we're past that window of time. Then there was a, there was a interesting rumor around town that, you know, I heard on the down low from multiple people. And then, it, then it got posted on one of the media sites that covers, covers Annapolis politics saying, well, maybe they'll do an extended session. And instead of leaving on Monday night, they'll stay in session for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in order to keep session open and compel the governor to act quickly. Um, anyway, all that got obviated. Um, the governor got the bills on probably Wednesday or so before the end of session. Uh, he technically could have dragged his feet, but then I guess by Friday, Friday night, right. he, he announced he was going, he was, he was planning to veto multiple bills. He did so and got the message back to the general assembly by Saturday. And so between Saturday and Monday, the house and Senate had plenty of time to take up what everybody knew was coming, an override of the governor's veto of the multiple bills. And they got that done with lots of time to spare. As I recall, fairly early on the final day, Monday, uh, the Senate took the final vote and got the bills all done. Right, they did. And so, you, you know, if you're the governor, you know you don't have the votes to sustain the veto, right? So I guess the calculus was either I can drag my feet and maybe throw a wrench into this for the for the final time, or I can just get this over with and they can override my vetoes and then everybody can go home and we're done. Right. And I so guess there, there he wasn't chose any, the latter, yeah. right? So I think that's probably like the the important takeaway is almost certainly no difference in the practical outcome. Uh, these bills weren't emergency bills that were that were effective the day of of being enacted. There wasn't anything super super urgent or super quick about it. So if the governor had just decided in the middle of May to veto the bills, General Assembly could have done a special session or even could have waited until January to override the vetoes and it would have been the same outcome. Right. So, you know, rather than making this into a spectacle and having, you know, the, 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 the political class like us, you know, cuck, cuck and wonder what's going on and so forth, we ended up basically just saying, okay, it's done, taken care of, bows on it. So, fine. So now, Michael, session is over. I mean, we've talked about a few of the takeaways and now we move right into county budget season, right? We're in it now. Counties are releasing their budgets, proposed budgets. They're working through them. And we know, Michael, I mean, again, if we look back six months ago, we may have said, wow, we're going to be in big trouble. There's going to be a lot of cuts and we may need to leave people off. But just like the state, federal funds are helping to cushion the blow that, that COVID-19 has had on state and local finances. So it's cushioning for the state and the counties, Michael. But there are still lingering questions about how state and local governments can spend this money. Yeah. The money is coming down from the feds. It's going to be directly distributed to counties and states. Every county in the country is going to get direct funding from the federal government, from the U.S. Treasury. But, Michael, it seems like the Treasury is dragging its feet a little bit on the exact guidance of what this money can and cannot be used for. I mean, what's the latest in 
your mind when it comes to that kind of guidance? Well, um, I'm 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 reluctant to be critical of U.S. Treasury, um, in part because recently I was on the website for the National Association of Counties. They have been trying to serve as a clearinghouse for both professionals and elected officials in counties across the country who have questions about. Can, can federal funds be used for this purpose? Or, you know, we're trying to do this for our first, our, our first responder. We need to, you know, we've been having this problem. You know, we've got a problem with opioids that we think is related to the pandemic. And is that still an acceptable use of these federal funds and so forth? I don't know. I, I, I gave up. I mean, this was kind of late at night. I was on the website looking at it. And at one point I basically was like, I just, I need to get some sleep. And you know, you look at the little scroll bar on the right side of a browser and like, there was still so much room to go. This, this isn't a short term effort. It's not like the money's all got to get spent in 60 days. And so we have to know by Tuesday, otherwise our window is going to close. Um, we know this is going to be a sustained effort. Some of, some of this is high priority. Some of this is looking backwards at commitments we've already made and hoping that the new federal funds can can live up to what we had hoped for that, you know, we, we spent money we basically didn't really have in hopes that the feds would show up either through FEMA, um, through like emergency reimbursement or through the kind of funding, the ARPA funding that's basically, you know, this is, this is the response to the, the coronavirus pandemic. Put all that stuff together. Um, I'm not going to slight Treasury, at least not yet, for not quite having every I dotted and T crossed. But I think in the weeks ahead, um, we'll see more and more details come together. That might be cold comfort if you're a county budget officer. Your your budget year starts July 1. You need to send out tax bills with a tax rate printed on them by sometime in late June. And so you need to have your decisions made in advance of all that. Most counties have either announced or just about to announce their proposed county budget. They go through a public process to, you know, to discuss all that and consider their options, hear from the public and agencies and stakeholders and so forth. So that's what the weeks ahead look like. And if you're still like uncertain, hey, I've got, I've got $400,000 that I'm hoping federal funds will take care of this. If not, then I need to magic some county money somehow. And right. that's a big number in my smallish county. Then that, you know, it, it's easy for me. I, I don't build a budget you know, like, like Chris Trumbauer from Anne Arundel County and his counterparts from other jurisdictions. You know, I, I don't build a budget for the county. You and I aren't in that business exactly. We work with all those folks, but it's easy for me to say, oh, the feds will figure it out. Give them time. But uh, I guess if you're trying to actually, uh, you know, propose all this stuff and get it ironed out at your county level, you'd, you'd like to have some you know, solid answers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have with our, our county budget finance officers affiliate. They have email threads going back and forth, and they're, they're collaborating and talking about, well, what about this and this? Well, we think that's probably going to be covered, but we don't know for sure. So, yeah, when you're talking about being in that seat, I think it's, it's a lot different than on the sidelines in terms of, well, the feds will get it together at some point. 
I will say it looks like in terms of the 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 breadth of what this money can be used for and the timeline and in which mm-hmm. counties can use it much better than the CARES Act, which we talked extensively yeah. about. This gives us a lot more time. And right. I think that's to your point of yeah. there'll be some time to figure this out. It doesn't have to be today. Yeah. And remember, in, in late 2020, we got into November and December and the clock was ticking. <laughs> and, you know, the advice was going out saying we, we, we can't really rely on Congress doing anything. And so if they can't actually get any action taken, even even after the election is done and, you know, basically all the dust has settled more or less on that, uh, even in the, the lame duck session of Congress, we might not be able to get anything done. And without them acting, there'd be no extension. So you might be in a use it or lose it situation. Um, it was it was really awkward for a lot of our jurisdictions saying, well, we're going to go buy a lot of protective equipment. That right. seems like a safe thing that we're going to, we have months ahead of still needing gloves and masks and things for our first responders and people who are doing, you know, working in clinics and in healthcare and, and the like. That was a mess with timing and uncertainty. Uh, here, we don't have the same pressures, fortunately. So everybody would like more certainty. Um, I, th- I think this will get untangled in, in enough time for most of the important decisions to get sorted out for the year ahead. I would agree with that. And, and along the, the same lines, you mentioned property tax rates, the state, Michael, the Board of Public Works, and we'll get into this process in a second. They have approved the state property tax rate. That rate has remained unchanged since 2007. Again, I would say if we go back six months, this is one of the things that maybe we thought the state may raise their their property tax rate. So, Michael, first of all, the state property tax rate is used for a specific purpose, right? Let's talk about that. And then, you know, why is the Board of Public Works setting this rate anyway? Let's get into a a little bit, not the 30-minute version, but I want to get to the end of of does this have any significance? But first of all, what is the state property tax rate? What is it used for? The money is dedicated to a certain purpose, correct? So, I mean, the short version is that we're used to the um, we're used to thinking of property taxes as a local government revenue, right? I mean, that's the easiest way to think of things. And honestly, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was pretty easy to say the federal government has the income tax, the state governments have sales taxes, and the local governments rely on property taxes. And those are the workhorses at each level. Now, we have we have blurred those lines in Maryland. So Maryland's different in multiple regards, but Maryland does have a state-level property tax. That rate is embedded in the... T- tax bill you get from your county so the county collects it on on behalf of on behalf of the state and potentially your municipality as well um, so even though you're stroking a check to you know Washington County Maryland as it turns out some of that is going to the state mm-hmm. um, the state has a pretty clever system that the state's property taxes are used first and foremost it goes into a special fund and the first element is pay off the debt service on the money we owe to bondholders. And we've had a couple conversations. We we brought in a guest speaker talking about bond ratings and what that stuff, you know, creditworthiness and that sort of thing. The bond rating agencies like this. Right. right. So so like you, you know, like fashion this backwards a little bit. The idea that Maryland has a system where this is a pretty predictable revenue source. It doesn't bounce around like right. corporate taxes or even personal income taxes, 
property taxes are relatively stable, um, and by design they are. So you can pretty comfortably set your rate and know that that much money is going to come in for the coming year. So stability and predictability is exactly the language that Standard and Poor's and Fitch and Moody's love to hear when they want to hear, is your jurisdiction going to be reliably able to pay off the bondholders? So, you know, if... If I, if I loan you money, that's effectively what buying a bond is. I'm going to loan you money and you go out and build that road or you build that new school or whatever. Um, as an investor, I'll loan you money and you're going to pay me back with interest. I want to know that you've got it. Maryland has a really good argument that we will have it. <laughs> yes. And, and so they, again, they, they kept that rate stable. And again, this is one of the things that maybe we thought if, if COVID-19 really, really took grip on our, on our state and local finances, if the state was in big trouble, if the feds didn't come through, this could have been somewhere where they had to raise that rate for the first time since 2007, but they didn't, Michael. I want to ask you, I mean, is this, can we glean anything from that? Can we say, well, it looks like the state feels like they're in pretty good shape. Right. They have enough money to pay off uh, all the all their debt service. So things aren't bad. If anything, right. what does this say about <laughs> the state of our finances in Maryland and the economy generally? Right. It feels, I mean, so I, I think it's, it's a fun game to play. It's a little bit like uh, people who are macro economists. Every time the Federal Reserve meets and they set interest rates, the whole universe, I mean, now social media, every economist has a social media account and everybody's out running around talking about, well, here's what I read in the guidance. Look at this sentence. This right. is what I think that means. Trying to interpret yeah, every so, word. Right? So like, like we're playing a similar game here to some degree that, that they hold firm on the tax rate for now. Does that mean everything's just, you know, copacetic here or? Is it really just an indication that short term, we're not in a cash crunch, we're not digging into an inordinate amount of general fund dollars to make good on our debt service? Right. Um, you know, which of those is it? I, I'll, I'll bite. I'm inclined to say there's no real news here. I mean, I, I would think that it, it's not like the, the board sat down and said, the rate is here and we expect it to stay here for the next five years or anything forward looking or like semi promises along those right. lines. This is just for 2022. Right. And right. I, I think it's pretty likely that the rate will stay the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's a reason why it's been since it's been almost 15 years since we've done anything with those rates. And it was probably, it was, a, as I recall, a pretty long window before then. Right. Uh, so that it's, it's no surprise that it's pretty stable year to year. And if in a given year, it turns out you need a little bit of cash out of general funds to cover the rest of, of the, you know, the debt service, mm -hmm. the state's been able and willing to do that. And it's, it's not like that's been a, a big, difficult political decision. So, um, I think on balance, what it, the reason it's worth asking is, and I feel like we've talked about this on the pod before. I think the reason it's worth asking is the Maryland economy and the American economy is still like hiding under a sheet. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think anybody has a really 
keen insight as to, as to what's really going on beneath the layers of federal support right. that have been deliberately applied to keep us from falling into financial chaos. Right. So the big question is, yeah. what is the economy really? When you take away all the federal money, the feds did their job. Right. They kept the economy afloat. But once that money dries up, what do things look like? Right. right. It's like when you yeah. drain the ocean, what's left? And you're looking yes, around. Yes, right? right. Yes. And I, I feel like like are there are there rocky shoals right under us right. and we're just not noticing it because it's high tide? Right? Great, <laughs> you know, right? yeah, exactly, yeah. So, exactly. And and like like this week, if I'm remembering correctly, I think Maryland's the statewide unemployment is like flat six percent, and I think the the national unemployment number is a little bit higher. Right. For Maryland to be at six percent unemployment is a tough time, first of all. Like, that's unusual. Maryland tends to be a little better cushioned than most parts of the state. We tend to not have super high highs, and we don't get quite as low as some other places. We don't have, you know, gold rushes like some of the places that are heavy in minerals or right, technology that, or other but things. But we do like have a lot that. of federal yeah. employees, and yeah, that's pretty yes. stable, right? And that's so, one of the big reasons why we have a pretty stable yes, unemployment rate, ab- right? absolutely right. So for, for Maryland to be at 6%, and at the same time, this is this is not uh, this is not an economist speaking just like a guy who reads the newspapers we know that there are some people who lost their jobs because of the pandemic but then like there are plenty of businesses that have been given relief grants and assistance basically don't fire your staff right? Right. like don't lay off everybody so Maybe the amount of business those the amount of uh, traffic that those businesses are receiving. And I'm thinking of hospitality bars and restaurants and that kind of stuff that's been really affected by mm-hmm. by the, the the health concerns. Okay, if the traffic doesn't merit the number of staff you have, but you've kept them on because you've gotten assistance. Well, okay, so those people who are still working there and getting paid through assistance funds, like. That's that's a weakness in the economy that we're not seeing, even in that six percent. Right, and then we know that there is a stripe of people in Maryland and elsewhere who just have given up. Right, they stopped looking. Right, we don't count unemployment in terms of uh, you know uh, sort of work age people without jobs. It's it's mostly counted as people who are seeking jobs and can't find them. Right. So if, if you got laid off in the, in last spring and you're still receiving extended unemployment, unemployment benefits or not, but you're not actively seeking a job, you're not in that 6%. I don't know what the real number, what the real U6 number is or whatever in, in economist terms for Maryland or America is right now, if you were to reveal all, you know, if you were to peel back these layers of assistance and aid, I mean, it's not like this is an accident, right? The, the, like the federal government said, it doesn't serve our interest to have the economy fall apart. And then the resources won't be there for someone to, yep. to take that 911 call right. when you're in distress. Like, we don't need that. So let's avoid that happening. We want to be able to have our schools and our public services and our clinics and, and all the like. This is the way we want it to operate, but what it means is we don't know what's lying under the surface. Right, and that's a broader conversation, right? But right. for now, at least, Maryland is not in any any fiscal peril. We have money. They don't need to raise the state property tax rate. The budget was relatively right. easy for this year. You know, in the out right. years, we'll see what happens. But a lot of that, again, it depends on when you drain the ocean, when the money dries up, right. where are we? What does that landscape look like? Right, and so when we say, like, in Maryland, it's not a crisis, at the sort of government level, public revenue, News are basically okay for right now. And that's 
That's the decision reflected in we can keep the state property tax rate where it is. We don't need to, need to make a change there because right now things are okay. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't families in economic distress or businesses in economic distress in our state or in other parts of the country. We know that's the case. We don't know how serious that is or how long it's going to last. So there are deep question marks about the economy and the economy drives like all the resources that underpin all those things that we care about. So we care about that stuff, even if we're not in that business in the moment because of the feds. Of course. So, so Michael, it seems like what you're saying is maybe we are masking a recession. Like to me, this country is in a recession, but it's being masked by, you know, just massive amounts of federal aid being pumped into the economy. I mean, is that, is that a fair point? I I think that's probably where we are. And, uh, you know, I, there, there, we'll never know. We'll never know what the indicators would have looked like week by week through the year of 2020 and 21. We'll never know what the real economy would have been. But I, I think, I, I, I genuinely think not because of government shutdown orders, but because of people's hesitance to be out and to do things right. that leads to uncertainty, that leads to people being less likely to make long-term decisions. Housing market has been an, also yeah. a weird anomaly because, you know, for a variety of reasons. Lots of refis and lots of maybe artificial participation in the housing market. Right. Uh, but there's an awful lot of people, like I, I say this all the time. It's like, do you buy a new refrigerator? And the theory is, well, I, I might need to put that on a credit card or I might need to deplete my savings to buy the new fridge. Right. I'm only doing that if I'm pretty sure I still have a job in six months. And I don't feel like this is the economy you know, right now or six months ago or 12 months ago, I don't think at any of those times the borderline person would say, yeah, I'm in for the new fridge. I agree with you. So again, a lot to untangle, a lot to come there in terms of our economic situation in the state and the country. But I guess, Michael, for there, we'll, we'll leave it today. And just as a reminder to our listeners, Maryland Podcast Month, the the nominations have been submitted. You can now go and vote for the awards, and that is available on their Facebook page. I think they have a website. We'll link it on the blog, but please go and support Maryland Podcast Month. Certainly a lot of great podcasts to check out. And in terms of our podcast, Michael, of course, people can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and the Conduit Street blog. But any final thoughts, Michael, before we head out today? I will just say for for the many of you who have been inclined to contact us after the podcast is released and so forth, we're getting ready to shift gears. The, getting into the warmer months and the General Assembly has left town. Last year was our first year of getting into forays of having guests and mm-hmm. doing remote recording with a variety of invited guests. Um if you like that format and you have a guest you'd like to hear or a topic you'd like to have us cover, we'd like to hear from you about that kind of stuff. So we get a broader latitude and, in all honesty, a little more time to focus on, you know, to be thinking ahead and thinking about interesting topics and so forth. We are very day-to-day during the legislative session. Once we get into the merry month of May, um, we get to spread our wings a little bit. And if you want to hear us bring on interesting guests, whether they're politicians, or policy people or just Marylanders with something to say, uh, let us know what's on your mind. We'd love to hear that. A lot of good stuff coming up. We'll leave it there. Until next week, this is Kevin signing off for Michael, and we will talk to you soon.